Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to the Knights and Nerds podcast. This is Tim speaking. I want to say thanks very much for listening to this. Today we are doing another uh, campaign planning episode, and this time it's just me talking about um, what I'm trying to accomplish in this campaign. So if you don't know what these episodes are, here's what I'm trying to do. Obviously, we have the actual play episodes, and then I do these campaign planning episodes, which my players do not listen to. They promise me. And the point of these episodes is for me to sort of share my uh, thought process, uh, my my brainstorming process in some ways. And I'll be doing these intermittently as the campaign progresses, so you can sort of follow along with the things that I say now as to what I'm trying to accomplish, and then you know, as as the adventure unfolds, we'll see if I am successful in accomplishing the things that I want to accomplish. Uh, and also, as things progress, um, I'll talk about how I am reacting to the player's choices, adapting the story to the player's choices, and sort of maybe incorporating some of the things that they think are happening. You know, if if that happens, we will see. So needless to say, all of this is going to be very spoiler heavy. So if you don't want like the uh, the campaign spoiled for you in terms of knowing what's going to happen, then I would recommend maybe bypassing these campaign planning episodes entirely and just listening to the actual play episodes. Um, okay, so what are we talking about here today? I've been working on this campaign now for some weeks. And I'm sharing my sort of haphazard brainstorming and weird thought process with you in the hopes that you may find this interesting or useful, uh, hopefully both. So I'm going to sort of talk to you about what I originally wanted to do and what I ended up going with. So here's what I originally wanted to do. And you'll sort of um, maybe recognize some of the things that I touched on in my conversations with Ryan Howard and Andrew Kolb. Uh, some of the things were already sort of revealed in terms of, you know, my my intentions for the uh, for the players and who the big bad is. To just to summarize, what I originally wanted to do for the new campaign was this: to have parallel narratives which would spontaneously shift, keeping the players on their heels until they could figure out why these changes were happening and then isolate the cause of these changes and ultimately bring the world back to one uh, quote-unquote stream of existence or version of reality. Uh, I wanted to have the parallel narratives each offering something different. That in each reality, there would be something that one of the party members really, really wanted, but that things were also worse for the other two. So essentially what I wanted to do, like the things that I knew that I wanted when I started, I wanted to have a beholder as the bad guy, and I wanted to have a dilemma, like a real big dilemma. And that dilemma was like these three competing narratives. The causes of the changes in reality, as mentioned before, obviously the beholder that's hibernating. So I got this concept when I was thinking of a story hook, uh, a certain scenario that I thought was interesting. An adventuring party encounters an enemy that they recently killed, only that he's alive and he has no memory of dying. He still remembers the party, but not not the encounter that led to his death. Now that was that was sort of the original story hook, and everything kind of spun off from there. And you'll see how uh, certain ideas I kind of have to leave at the side of the road because I just couldn't make them work. 
But with this hook, I had to come up with an answer to obviously like the most straightforward question. How did this happen? Um, After reading the monster manual casually, as I sometimes do, I came across the beholder and the part about what happens when it dreams uh, really caught my attention. In a nutshell, when a beholder dreams, the beholder's subconscious can alter reality around it, like change the very fabric of existence. It can dream new beholders into existence. It can dream smaller versions of beholders into existence and start like an entire colony, which is a horrifying proposition. And anyways, you know how I like to turn things up to 11, so I thought, what are the limits to this ability? How big could the area of its influence be? If this beholder is like in a really deep sleep, what are the effects of the warping? Do things just get weird and start resembling a beholder homeworld? Whatever that's like. I don't really even want to think about that. It's probably visine everywhere, and and nearsightedness is the most feared enemy of all. Or it could be something totally different, like causing parallel realities. Now, at this stage uh, of, of the planning, an important thing that I realized is I needed to know what questions I had to ask myself. How did the beholder get there? Um, there being, like, the world that the player characters inhabit. Um, this could also be phrased as, why is the beholder there? How and why may be connected. Um, why is the beholder dreaming of things specific to the player characters? Like I mentioned that I wanted to have these three parallel narratives and each of them offering something to the specific player, like trying to trying to make them complacent in their reality, despite the other two uh, player characters, members of their party, being very unhappy there. So yeah, why is it dreaming things specific to the party? Uh, what does having these shifting realities actually do for the narrative? Like, how is the narrative improved by this? So those are the, those are like the big questions that I was facing. And before we really tackle those questions, uh, I want to do a quick summary of the elements that are part of the player character's backstories, like the big the big elements, the 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 putty that I have to work with. So Thaddeus, that's Matt Orton, uh, his paladin. Thaddeus has a nemesis, that's Bryce. He also has a very unhappy backstory where he, his eye patch is like clothing from his son's uh, like swaddling thing. He lost a, a young child. That's his. That's his backstory. Uh, and Bryce was involved in this. Uh, lost loved ones also goes for Gutterbird. He he lost a significant other, his wife, and that led him um, to to join into this pact. He was trying to save her, joined into this pact, uh, ended up losing her anyways, and now he's stuck in this pact. Speaking of Gutterbird, uh, a powerful devil, his patron. And for Chai, we have uh, the Feywild. That's a pretty big element of her, her backstory. It brings in an entire new realm that I'm going to have to deal with at some point. And also for Thaddeus, a war that has been fought in recent memory. So those are sort of the big components that I have to sort of weave into this whole um, adventure that I want to make. So I decided that Thaddeus's nemesis would be one of the first bosses or, or opponents that the party faces. 
The Beholder, I decided, was going to be sort of third act material. I, I At this point, I have no idea at what point they will f- uh, learn that The Beholder is actually even involved in this entire uh, story. It won't be right off the bat. Um, so The Beholder is kind of third act material, um, as would potentially Gutterbird's fiendish patron leaving the middle somewhat open for a second uh, boss baddie. Based on the hook that I thought of earlier, I quickly decided that the nemesis would be the one who gets killed fairly early on, but then comes back again. I mean, that that must mean that there are parallel realities right near the beginning of the story, right? Um, or the influence of the Beholder must be possible right from the start. So that... That sort of decision as to when the Beholder comes in uh, is already made at that point. So the Beholder must already be present in the world for that to happen. Okay, now let's try to tackle some of those questions that I mentioned before. First, the Beholder. Why is it here? And how did it get here? Um, One of the most obvious possibilities are that it was summoned, or that it came here on its own, or that it's been here already for some time. So those, I think, are the most obvious answers. Because a general rule of storytelling is that the story should start at the moment of greatest change, I decided that the story should start around the time when the Beholder arrives. This means that the elements at the very beginning of the campaign will be the nemesis, the Beholder, something to bring the Beholder into the world, something to cause the Beholder to be hibernating when it arrives, and something to connect the three players together. And I won't lie, for at least a week, maybe two weeks, I struggled to answer the questions as to why the player characters would be special. Like, why are these competing narratives singling them out? Why is the Beholder dreaming of things that the party might want? Does it want something from them? It took me some time to realize that I had to reframe this whole question. I was wanting to create this situation with multiple storylines that would ultimately lead to a big dilemma and the players having to make a difficult choice. So once they figured out what was happening, of course, that choice would be, do we want to live in the real world or do we want to live in a fabrication? Do we want to live in a lie if it means that some of us get something good out of it? And I thought it would be an interesting choice if if they chose to live in a lie, knowing that they were in a dream. But I could not, for the life of me, figure out how to make this work. And the thought of creating three, three parallel storylines, not just creating, but keeping track of all the happenings therein, uh, was just uh, just too much. Too daunting of a task for me. So I decided to untether myself a little bit from this idea and go back a few few steps. Instead of focusing on the player characters, I decided to focus more on the Beholder itself. I asked, what does the Beholder want? And with that simple shift in focus, things started to fall into place a little bit better. Knowing that the Beholder and the Nemesis needed to be factors at the beginning of the campaign, I was able to answer one of those questions. How did the Beholder get here? Answer. The Nemesis performs a ritual to summon it. I don't know why, but it had not occurred to me to align Thaddeus's Nemesis with the Beholder. But once I did, things started to make a lot more sense. The Nemesis performs the ritual. Uh, We'll get into that uh, a little bit later, into the how. 
um, and summons a being to this plane because he believes if he can do this thing that it wants, which is to be brought here, then it will grant him power, making him its trusty lieutenant. And to answer another question, why is it hibernating? A simple and effective answer is because the party interrupts the ritual. The summoning still occurs, but the interruption has some unintended consequences. And the party and everyone in that cave are caught up in the beholder's influence just out of sheer proximity. Not because of anything inherently special to them. So this is kind of the explanation of like, oh, it's magic. There doesn't really have to be a rationale when you're dealing with weird magical side effects and aberrations. Uh, you can just, like, lots of strange things can happen, right? Okay, so working backwards from there. So I've got, essentially, I, I have an encounter that I have to prepare, which is the players, uh, the party, interrupting this ritual. Uh, so I need to sort of answer the next question, which is how does the party know what's happening and where it is? Well, I already knew that I'd wanted the Warlock's patron to be a semi-active character in the campaign. So, the patron gives the Warlock the information. Uh, the patron fiend is also aware of Thaddeus and Chai. And so, with uh, magic users being less common in this world, it decides to ensnare them into this hook as well. It needs some semi-competent, semi-powerful um, adventurers to to carry out this errand for it. Uh, why does the fiend care? Um, well, at some point I decided that this fiend was all about balance. Devils being lawful and all, it seemed to make sense. And being aware that something was about to happen that would severely unbalance things in a very catastrophic way. The fiend directs our heroes to stop this ritual, but the summoning still happens just sort of incorrectly. And the beholder is hibernating on arrival. Of course, the fiend has his own ambitions, which may play a significant role in the third act, depending on how the players approach things, but we'll get to that later. So, we've got a story hook, and we have some story elements that touch on two of the three players. We have the patron giving the warlock a direct order. We have Thaddeus's motivation in being able to fight his sworn enemy, which leaves Chai, the Eladrin druid, I know that Sarah, the player, would be perfectly happy with this hook and would find it very engaging as is. Uh, but I wanted to give it a bit more substance and answer another question at the same time. That question being, how is it that the nemesis can perform this ritual in a low magic setting? I sort of figured that the nemesis even only knows about the beholder, this alien being, by virtue of the beholder, being able to communicate with creatures on the material plane with some kind of like limited te uh, telepathy. Uh, sort of like how sleeping Cthulhu whispers to his cultists. Uh, but knowing that this thing wants to be summoned doesn't automatically equip you to be able to perform the ritual. So the nemesis seeks out someone who knows magic. Again, not an easy task in this setting. He finds a being from a place that is overflowing with magic. He recruits an Eladrin. Not anyone that Chai knows, since that would be just kind of too coincidental and too convenient. Uh, but someone whose involvement would get her interested in the story right away. Who is this person? Why are they helping a mortal with this awful ritual? I have some ideas on that, which I will eventually get to. But anyways, I have this hook. 
but now I'm left to answer more questions, primarily about the Beholder's dreams. I've already moved away from the idea of three concurrent narratives, and I have to answer the question, what does the Beholder want? Now this answer is really tied in with the setting. So before I had really started planning the campaign, I had I had uh, more or less decided that I wanted magic to be a little less commonplace than it was in the average D&D game. Um, I wanted it to be a big deal when the players received a magic item. Uh, the reason for this is mostly because of the last campaign, actually, where the players had an abundance of magic items to the point where it made balancing an encounter somewhat of a challenge. Because um, I never I never knew if they would remember the, the items that they had. Um, a quick side note, one question that immediately came up is how how is it that there's a party of three spellcasters in a low magic setting? I think I already sort of touched on this in the other campaign planning episodes, but just to recap, each of the player characters has a very good reason for having their own spellcasting abilities. The warlock has his patron, the paladin has his deity, which I know is not always the source of magic power for a paladin, but I believe in this case it is. And the Eladrin is from a different plane of existence where magic is extremely common. So it's just unusual that the three of them have are like palling around together. That's very out of the ordinary. So when I started working on the setting, I was reading a world-building questionnaire. Uh, I'll try to link to it if I can still find it. Uh, one of the questions was about the most recent natural disaster or what natural disasters occur, something like that. Um... My mind skipped over floods, fires, volcanoes, and I kind of thought about it like a meteor strike. Um, And that kind of set a light off, an idea bulb, if you will. Don't know why I phrased it like that. Uh, What if meteorites are made of raw, solidified magic? Uh, This would explain why magic items are so rare, uh, because the substance with which to make them is extremely limited. Uh, And so... I thought it was like a logical conclusion that when these meteorites fall, it would immediately spark some kind of arms race between, well, you know, anyone who wants to obtain them. Now, these meteorites could fall in multiples, or maybe it's one larger object that yields a lot of power, but is difficult to control and is even more difficult to move. I mean, the sheer number of questions about what effects these things have is something that uh, I think I'm still trying to figure out and will almost certainly have to address in a future episode. Uh, For now, let's just say that they're powerful. Perhaps different stones have varying degrees of potency, but regardless, they are much coveted. So I I figured it made sense to, to tie these magical meteorites to the beholder's motivations. The Beholder knows that there is about to be an event where a number of these meteorites will fall, and it wants them to help it change. It wants to become a death tyrant. Now, normally I believe a Beholder can accomplish this with the right attitude and a powerful enough dream, um, but in this case, I'm just going to say it needs some magic fuel. Now, I think we've gone down... Uh, This is almost like a tangent, but I want to sort of bring it all back to the dreaming beholder. Like, what what does the beholder dream about while it's in this sort of hibernation stasis? Um, So the beholder, while hibernating, is still sort of aware of what it wants and subconsciously is still trying to achieve its goals. 
It still wants the magical shards and wants its minions, namely the nemesis and the Eladrin that he's recruited, to obtain them. So it makes sense then that every time the party obtains too much of this stuff, the Beholder will do a bit of a dream reboot, where it resets when things are, when when the players are, <laughs> if I can phrase it like that. And this will allow it to give its followers another chance to obtain this stuff. Um, why doesn't it just dream that the its followers have it already? Um, maybe it's maybe it's not that aware. I can't control my dreams. Um, I know that some people can, but maybe this beholder can't. Maybe it's just in such a deep sleep that um, it's not that cognizant of the fact that it's hibernating. So, anyways, this might this might strike you as familiar if you've seen uh, Edge of Tomorrow, where. Uh, there is a mechanism that resets time. This isn't quite the same, but definitely I feel like I've borrowed it. Uh, resetting reality in weird ways. And the reset can take different lengths of time. If if the Beholder dreams of this meteor shower event where there's 10 shards and the players, uh, sorry, the party obtains six and they have the majority at that point, it might reset, but it might take the the party, you know, months to collect that. So there's going to be a few of these resets, and it's not going to happen at regular times. And so I think uh, it'll confuse them as to when things reset. It'll con- it will confuse them as to why now, like why did this just happen now? So when that reset happens and a new dream is starting, it's because the party has won something over the bad guys. And because I don't want to immediately take away their victory, the heroes will retain their XP and loot, and most importantly, whatever shards they collect, they'll still hang on to that. But by resetting the dream, the Beholder is giving his own followers another chance to win some of this material. Each time this happens, the party will be better equipped, and probably higher level, or closer to being higher level. And also, if they can figure out how to make use of the shards, uh, that'll that'll be useful as well. But the Beholder will probably make his followers stronger too, because it knows that they have failed. Now, it can't just make them invincible because, well, maybe it doesn't want to make them too powerful, more powerful than it is. And it's still hibernating, so I think its ability to really take forceful control of the narrative in a way that it might do when it's fully conscious. Um... Its hibernation is sort of limiting that massive intellect that it has. So all of its influence is subconscious, not the full, maniacal, focused intent that a beholder can muster. So this is more or less how the stage is set for the first act of the campaign. Uh, This dream will reset two or three times, and then we're going to shift gears my intention is for Act 2 of the campaign to involve more of the Feywild and the Eladrin. And then the final act will be the party confronting Beholder and possibly the Warlock's patron as well. Right, so that is sort of where uh, things are at the beginning. Now, I want to touch on very briefly uh, a few things. Sort of my ideas for the like the bigger arcs for the the player characters, like where they're going to end up in Act 3, like what that's going to look like, and the Feywild. Now, the Feywild is going to be very interesting. 
and I have really only started to sort of uh, jot down some ideas of what could happen if the players enter the Feywild. And someone in our Dungeon Master group, um, Paul, had asked some very good questions um, about, uh, like, some very logical questions about how the Feywild can sort of exist, uh, you know, transposed over this low magic setting. And doesn't that present some difficulties and some potential problems? And I think absolutely it does. And I think... Uh, I was wanting to address some of those questions now, but I think I think I'm going to do an entire episode. Um, maybe the next one of these will be will include sort of my brainstorming for the Feywild. So um, I want to thank Paul for those questions in the DM group uh, on Facebook, and I will do my best to answer all of those in a satisfactory way, as well as as share my uh, thought process on creating the Feywild, uh, which pre- will prove I'm sure will prove to be um, uh, a bit of a challenge. So, player character arcs. Um, let's start with Gutterbird. Now, Gutterbird's logical end to his arc, like he he wants to be out of his pact. And I was thinking that his patron may want some of these magical meteorite shards called Starfall or God's Eye, whatever you, whatever you choose to call them. His patron wants wants those two. The beholder wants them. The patron wants them. And he will he will offer something to Gutterbird if Gutterbird does something very bad, um, bad for uh, the world and bad especially for Chai. I thought it would be interesting if the patron wanted to sort of get a little de- uh, devilish, hellish foothold in the Feywild, and to do that um, to get a piece of Starfall, maybe a very potent, powerful piece. And sort of uh, plant it in the Starfall, if you will, like a seed. Uh, and that would allow this devil to have sort of like this out, uh, this outpost, this foothold into the Feywild, where it can ex- exert its evil influence. Uh, obviously, Chai would not want that, and I don't think Gutterbird would want to do that either. The patron, I think, will offer something very compelling to Gutterbird. I do. I actually do want to make it hard for Kevin to say no. As I mentioned before, he has a lost wife, and I am toying around with the idea of having the death of the wife be the fault of the patron. And so the, the this devil sort of engineered the wife's demise, um, maybe using his hellish powers, was able to, to know a willing soul when he sees one. Now, Kevin had actually said in his own backstory uh, that his wife died from a, a sickness, uh, a disease, and I thought, well, maybe it's poison. And you know what uses poison? Imps. Uh, and he has an imp familiar. I think it would be kind of a neat twist to reveal that the patron was responsible. And also that he could bring her back. And that he'll bring her back, release him of his bond, and maybe even go a step further as like... Um, Maybe setting them up in the Feywild in a nice, safe place where they won't age, you know? That is a pretty compelling offer. And all he has to do is basically destroy part of the Feywild. But I know that, I mean, come on. He's going to say no. He's obviously going to decline that. And I think it makes, I think it would be interesting for another patron to step up. 
Now, this sort of ties into the Eladrin that Thaddeus's nemesis Bryce has recruited. Uh, I had the idea that maybe they don't belong to a court. They're kind of uh, ghost Eladrin. I think Shadow Eladrin, has, like the Shadow Court, has probably been overused, and I don't want to, I don't want to appropriate anyone's, um, like a, a term that someone else has come up with. Even though I'm sure Ghost Eladrin has probably been used too, and I, I'm not even all that fond of it. But who knows? Maybe maybe it will end up sticking because I can't think of anything else. But anyways, there is this uh, a type of Eladrin which does not belong to a court. They're kind of exiles. They live in a um, a part of the Feywild that has been maybe magically locked away. Uh, I I'm still working. I'm still brainstorming this particular part, but imagine imagine a, a dark entity that just spreads and it spreads to every person that it touches. Um, and so there is this evil influence. It corrupted some Eladrin. It makes them its servants. And they go out and they spread this darkness somehow. And it, anyway, so Thaddeus' nemesis has somehow come across one of these Eladrin. And this is also going to give something for Chai to look into. Chai's backstory is that she is part of a noble family. Her, her family is involved in the ruling courts, so she's very well-to-do. And it would be interesting if her family wasn't like ha- knew, knew about these, this, these ghost Eladrin and was somehow involved in locking them away. But the problem with locking something away and throwing away the key and really not monitoring is that you don't know if it get if it's going to get will will it just be contained as it is or will it grow even though it's supposedly contained. So I'm thinking that this might be the uh, act 2 antagonist will be a group of these Aladrin who are allied with Thaddeus's nemesis and the Beholder. Why? Because maybe the Beholder is promising them like that it will come into the Feywild and mess things up and let them take control of it. Uh, I don't know. Or maybe they just want to see the material plane destroyed. You know, they want to see the darkness spread. And if the, and if this Beholder comes in and uh, really messes things up, maybe it will be easier for them to come in afterwards and for that darkness to spread in the chaos. Um, yeah, still, still working on the finer details of that. But anyways, this is just really my, my thoughts right now. I don't want to commit too forcefully to anything yet when it's so early on. Uh, I just want to have ideas that are ready to deploy if the right decisions are made, if the right opportunities present themselves. So this group of Eladrin the Ghost Eladrin, let's call them the Ghost Court. Oh, I guess that name is sticking, I don't know. Anyways, so they have to have a leader, this leader who is quote-unquote infected, corrupted by this, this darkening force. I do want the players to have the ability to redeem this this Eladrin, and maybe they use the Starfall for that purpose, actually to to sort of set them free from this darkness. And so here, here's my here's where everything ends up. If Gutterbird and Chai decide to disobey the, the fiend and save this Eladrin, that the the patron will, I think, be done with Gutterbird at that point for disobeying and probably remove his powers and then try to kill him immediately. 
because he's going to be he's going to be pretty pissed. But if they save this Eladrin, if they can redeem this Eladrin who's been corrupted by darkness, how cool would it be if the Eladrin becomes his new patron, and then he's he's a, a warlock of the Archfey? I like that. I think that would be a really cool, uh, really cool arc for Kevin's character. Uh, he did tell me that he that Gutterbird has some amnesia. He doesn't remember his his own name. Gutterbird, that is. Kevin, I'm sure, remembers his own name. Um, and here's here's an idea that I'm still kicking around. I don't know if I I don't know how sold on this idea I am, but here here goes. I thought it might be neat to sort of throw in an inception style storyline into his backstory. Uh, where he and his wife had sort of stumbled into the Fey Wild and maybe lived there for a time, who knows how long? Who know? Because here's the thing: reading about the Fey Wild and the Dungeon Master's Guide, there's very little to go on. But what they do say is is time warp, not the song from Rocky Horror Picture Show, but you know, actual lost time and memory loss. And they could have been in the Fey Wild for you know a few months. But maybe it was years on the material plane, so maybe maybe it was decades. Who knows? I don't know how how to address the questions of if the patron still took notice of Gutterbird at this time. Maybe that maybe he did notice Gutterbird and said was thinking, this could be somebody I could manipulate into my service. And at the same time they stumble into the Feywild, and maybe that's where the patron was like, hmm, this Feywild place is pretty cool. I would like to have some of it someday. And so the patron's playing this long game, poisons the wife, the wife dies, everybody's sad. Gutterbird becomes a patron. He has memory loss, maybe from the Feywild, but maybe also because the patron offered him power to try to save her. But also maybe... Because Gutterbird asked for, to, to be done with those memories. Maybe he just couldn't stand the guilt, feeling that he was responsible, and that even with power, that he could not save her. Anyways, I think it would be interesting. Because if they were in the Feywild, perhaps the wife was uh, somehow also corrupted. And so these ghost Aladrin know Gutterbird. They know him. But he got out. She didn't. Maybe she's still alive. Oh, that's an idea. He thinks that she's dead. Maybe she's still alive, and she is one of these ghost Eladrin, and she can be saved too. How about that? Okay, so this is why this is why it's good not to commit it to anything because uh, I just sort of hash this idea out. Anyways, okay, so um, where Chai ends up, uh, I think that she's going to have to take control of her. Uh, of the family's role in the court uh, because I think it will come out that the family really biffed it when it came to trying to contain this darkness. They didn't do a good job. They didn't contain it well enough. Uh, It was sort of cordoned off but still was able to grow and spread it in different ways that they didn't anticipate. As you can tell, I don't have very solid ideas in this regard, but I think think Chai will sort of have to sort of step up and become the leader of her house. Maybe disavow her family. Maybe go rogue. Who knows? Could be interesting if if all this comes about and the family's only really 
only really cares about preserving the Feywild, but uh, doesn't really care at all about the Material Plane. Uh, I think it'd be an interesting journey for uh, Chai to really become fond of her mortal friends. And I think that'd be some some interesting role-playing uh, characteristics. Okay, so Thaddeus. Where does Thaddeus end up? He wants vengeance. He is a Oath of Vengeance paladin. Uh, he's going to kill his nemesis repeatedly. And uh, I think it will be less and less rewarding uh, and more and more frustrating. Like He wants to kill him dead and not to see him come back. But here's the thing. Um, his nemesis has a magic weapon, um, the Screaming Skull Mace that I mentioned in one of the episode zeros. So this mace took the life of his family, took the lives of his family. And an idea that I'm playing with is that it it consumes souls so that people killed by this mace uh, do not sort of go on to any sort of peaceful afterlife. They are trapped. And I think I think he must... I'll have to figure out a way to really convey this, is that he must want to get this item and then have it unmade somehow. And that's going to have to be sort of its own quest. Like, unmake it and release all the spirits of the people trapped inside. Now, the skull is one of... It's, it's a skull of the quiet. As as I mentioned, or, or these, these transformed hobgoblins, uh, it's one of their skulls, and therefore uh, very peculiar, very menacing, and has some weird magical qualities. Um, so he might have to go into their sort of society and and see if he can convince them to undo the magic that is holding it together. Or he might have to find someone else who's very skilled uh, at making these sort of items, and that might be an entire... Uh, quest on its own and that is still something that i have to figure out who who makes these things where are they who who are they loyal to and why aren't they making all sorts of weapons for themselves who knows i mean those are some real i figured if i was like one of the only people in the world who could make a bazooka uh i'd be you know what i'd be in pretty high demand if the world was like really wanted a lot of bazookas you know a bad example um so that's where we are right now so I've sort of got the stage set for the first couple of encounters. Uh, the first episode, I know it's going to happen. They're going to interrupt the ritual. And then they'll be thrust into the first dream at the end of the first episode. I know that. I have some ideas as to where uh, I want the characters to head. But you know what? As we go through the campaign and explore this world together, that might change. So I have ideas. I'm not committed to anything yet. Uh, we will see. We will see how it all plays out. Next episode, uh, hopefully one of the next episodes, maybe the next one, but one of the next episodes will be on the Wild. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to making up some, some really neat stuff. Hopefully it's neat. Maybe it'll be lame, but who knows? So hopefully this has been uh, illuminating in some way. Uh, if you have enjoyed this, let me know. You can join our Discord or our Dungeon Master group on Facebook where we talk about all sorts of behind-the-screen stuff. And if you do want to support the podcast, you can uh, tell a friend. Tell a friend about it. You can leave a rating or review if you want. Okay, so this has been this has been nice. Thank you for sitting down with me. And one week from today, we're going to get into it. Episode 1. 
I think it might be our longest episode to date. A little over two hours, so hope you enjoy it. And uh, I guess we're just going to let the outro music take it away because it's so epic. Dun, 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 dun.